You're listening to Sex Gets Real with Dawn Sarah. That's me. This is a place where we explore sex, bodies, and relationships from a place of curiosity and inclusion, tying the personal to the cultural, where you're just as likely to hear tender questions about shame and the complexities of love as you are to hear experts challenging the dominant stories around pleasure, body politics, and liberation. This is about the big and the small, about sex and everything surrounding it we don't usually name. The funny, the awkward, the imperfect happen here in service to joy, connection, healing, and creating healthier relationships with ourselves and each other. So welcome to Sex Gets Real. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Hello to you and welcome to Sex Gets Real. I know I missed an episode last week and I hope that you will forgive me. I really took this vacation of mine so seriously. And for the past three weeks, I did for the first time ever since being self-employed, virtually no work. I answered, I think, three emails total in three weeks. I did no writing, no real planning. I just took that time to really focus on resting and nourishing myself. And I read awesome books. I did a bunch of puzzles. We watched several movies and cooked delicious food. And I just slowed way the fuck down. It was glorious. And it and it really gave me the space to start having all kinds of new ideas, new dreams. I started connecting new dots, which was so overdue. But I just needed time and space to start feeling into new places rather than just kind of doing the daily grind that we are all used to. And now it's mid-December. We're just a few weeks away from the end of the decade. It's going to be the 20s again. Isn't that bizarre? When I think of the 20s, I think of like flappers. (laughs) And F. Scott Fitzgerald. (laughs) And here we are, 100 years later, about to be in the 20s again. Anyway, this week's episode is you and me and your emails. I can't wait because there's some really great ones for us to dive into. And speaking of emails, if you could use some support, if you're feeling stuck or unsure, if you've got a question, I would love to hear from you. I have a contact form on my website, donsara.com, which is where the podcast lives now. And you can email me either using your name and your email or anonymously. And I love hearing from all of you. It really truly is like a little present that I get to unwrap every single time I receive a new message. And because it's the holidays, or about to be, (laughs) I am going to be taking December 22nd and 29th off for the holidays this year. I've got family coming into town and I'm trying to just kind of maintain a little bit of this slowness because 2020 is going to be completely fucking wild. (laughs) And I would love just a little more time to rest and recover and tend to myself. 
which means for the next two weeks, I'm going to be airing some Explore More talks, which will be new to most of you, and um, maybe an older episode of the show too. And then new episodes are going to start back up January 5th of 2020, which is weird to say, (laughs) but that's me practicing self-care, which is something that we talk about a lot here on the show is boundaries and taking care of ourselves and asking for support. And that's what I'm doing. I also have two really exciting announcements. I am in two new books. I have an essay in a new anthology that Jeremy Shubb and Elena Gabosh, I think that's how you say Elena's last name, co-edited called Sex Positive Now, an anthology of movers and shakers in the world of sexuality. So I think you can go to sexpositivenow.com to check out the book. There's an ebook version and a print version. There's like 30 sex educators who all have essays in there and mine is one of them. So be sure to check that out. And then something that I am ridiculously excited about is Meg John Barker's new book, Gender, A Graphic Guide, which is going to be released in the U.S. and Canada in January of 2020, features me as a comic book character. I have been comic-cized. I'm talking about bodies and oppression. Meg John saw something that I had written and really liked it. And so they included it in this new book, along with a comic version of me saying it to you because it's a graphic novel. And it's so damn cool. Everything Meg John does, I'm totally obsessed with. So please be sure to check out both of those, especially Gender, A Graphic Guide. And Meg John also has another book called Queer, a graphic guide. So if you haven't checked that out, check it out too. I'll have links to both of those things at donsarah.com slash EP288 for episode 288, which is where we are today. Uh, Oh, and if you haven't heard about it yet, there is a new show on Showtime called Work in Progress. And one review wrote, the queerest show on TV is about a suicidal butch with OCD. A friend of a friend is actually the creator and the star of it. And it looks terrific, smart, timely, funny, more real than most television is around queer folks. So if you're looking for a new show, definitely check that out and report back. You can see it on Showtime and it's called Work in Progress. I'm hoping to catch it actually over the holiday season and and check it out myself. A few weeks ago, two articles came up in my feed that I saved because I was not working. (laughs) And here we are. Uh, because I wanted to share a little bit about them with you. I felt like they were really important. You can get the links to both of these articles I'm about to talk about at donsarah.com slash EP288 if you want to check those out, and I highly recommend it. So the first piece spawned the second piece. And the first piece is a piece by Inez Rollo titled, I was in a polyamorous and abusive relationship for seven years here's what I learned. I want to share a few excerpts from it for us to think about, but I really recommend reading the entire piece. It's quite long and there's a lot of really great information in it that I think all of us could use sitting with and investigating and being curious around. 
But here's a handful of bits from the piece. Inez writes, love is no match for abuse. But love, or what we think love is, will keep us trapped in dangerous relationships. So what does all of this have to do with being non-monogamous? It almost goes without saying that abusive and toxic relationships can take any shape. Abuse happens in any configuration. Talk of abuse in heterosexual monogamous relationships is more and more common these days, but we're still far from approaching same-sex relationships and non-monogamies the same way. We all know it can happen in same-sex relationships. We all know it can happen anywhere and everywhere. We just don't talk about it. And Yez goes on, he did what most abusers do. He never hit me, of course. He never overtly overpowered me. He was discreet and careful to the point of near perfection. He made me apologize for things I didn't do, made me feel like most things that didn't go well with us were my fault, created rules for the relationship that served him first and foremost, started complex conversations about our relationship that went on for hours to the point of my exhaustion, kept testing my limits and boundaries didn't stop when I said no or otherwise conveyed my discomfort, used my intellectual work to improve his, co-opted my ideas to further his career, used up all my empathy because he didn't have any, controlled who I dated and the progress of my relationships, hindered my chances with women I was interested in, relying on the fact that I was an introvert and using that to his advantage, used my reputation to protect his, used my general niceness to his favor, and even, yes, to get closer to women who were close to me, relied on my emotional labor, manipulated conversations and situations, even took advantage of my housework chores and labor. Another part says, it's my conviction that ethical non-monogamy and polyamory are not inherently abusive. Neither is being monogamous. But I noticed that there are some things about polyamory and non-monogamy that might make it even more difficult to spot abusive behavior. Those were the things that also allowed for what happened to me. Poly-mainstream discourse is made for the sane of mind, or at least for an ideal poly person who does not exist. It rarely addresses the experiences of people dealing with mental health issues, suffering from anxiety disorders, panic attacks, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, or people living with trauma or depression. Poly Bibles everywhere are intent on making you face everything, your jealousy, your fear of abandonment, your insecurities. Most of that discourse assumes you can do it as well as the next person. It doesn't take into account that if you suffer from, say, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, you might not be able to use communication standards made for neurotypical people. Or you might try it and then go on to have an anxiety crisis for six hours or spend years thinking pain 
and anxiety are a normal part of being in a relationship of this kind, aka what happened to me. And if you live to see the next day, the next year, maybe it worked, right? One other passage that Eve Rickert zeroed in on and responded to, which is the second piece that I'll speak to in a minute, reads, and these are Inez's words again, I accepted the unease and emotional distress because I thought they were normal. I talked publicly about those feelings and got an immense validation from my community. I thought being in pain was the deal. Suffering was part of it, like all the books said. I didn't know that pain is always a warning. Our bodies and feelings know what the deal is before we do, even if our brains convince us otherwise. Paying attention to what I feel was one of the biggest lessons I learned. Notice whom you're with when you're in pain or discomfort. Feelings aren't random. You're not exaggerating, being too emotional, too dramatic, or too sensitive. Most of the poly literature I read kept telling me I could do it no matter how much pain I felt. It taught me to put bandages on it, to strategize around it, but never to listen to it. Polly is very critical of feelings as commodities, of love as a scarce resource. It's supposed to be something that values love and feeling, but instead it tackles feelings as things to be dealt with and over with. It doesn't recognize that feelings might be there for a reason. Feelings are not meant to be simply overcome. Sometimes they're meant to be felt. And finally, one of the closing thoughts that Inez shares is this. I also realized that loving someone is valuing their well-being. Committing to someone can mean that you won't always go after every possible relationship, even if you're non-monogamous. And none of my partners ever did that for me. It took me years to understand that asking for this is not too much. I am not too much. Love is considering your partner's trauma and boundaries. Love is caring for your partner. If it doesn't do that, it isn't love. One of the patterns that Inez is pointing out in her piece is that this person she was with almost always partners with young women in their early 20s who are in crisis in some way. Noticing patterns like that is really important. Are we choosing people who are our equals or even who we can learn from in some way? Or are we choosing people who are easier to manipulate, who might need to be saved? That that deserves some reflection and investigation. And Yaz also talks about how she never thought something like this would happen to her being in an abusive relationship because she was a feminist and she was surrounded by other women who were polyamorous and feminist and that that masked some of the abuse and the ways that she and this person's other partners actually buffered him from accountability was something that she wasn't able to see until much later. And again, I'm so happy that she mentioned that like all of these behaviors are behaviors that we can see in 
absolutely any kind of relationship, monogamous, polyamorous, relationship anarchy. That said, as she's naming, there are a lot of things in mainstream rhetoric around non-monogamy, polyamory, and relationship anarchy that feed into this notion of hyper-individualism and the violence of that. And that opens the door to gaslighting and manipulation, to believing our needs are more important than anything else, that someone else's feelings are 100 and totally percent theirs to manage and not our responsibility. That's true to a point. And we have to recognize our behaviors, the choices we make, the way we say things do impact others. And I'm really glad that we're starting to see some really important conversations starting to emerge, like Polyamory's Me Too movement with Eve Rickert and so many others, and pieces like this one that Inez wrote that can help us to really begin sinking into what it means to be in community, to be held accountable, to feel a sense of relational responsibility. You know, as, as Inez wrote, love is considering your partner's trauma and boundaries. Love is caring for your partner's well-being, even if that means sometimes making choices that feel frustrating or disappointing around your own personal desires. It's not so much about sacrifice as it is about choice and nurturing each other through the complexities of life. So if you'd like to read Inez's piece, which I highly recommend, it's pretty long. I've got the link at donsarah.com slash EP288. And I just want to really briefly also mention, this came to my attention because Eve Rickert, who co-wrote More Than Two, which is kind of one of the big polyamory Bibles, shared Inez's piece and then actually wrote a piece on her blog in response to it. And it's titled, What I Got Wrong in More Than Two the dark night of the soul. And in this piece, which I link to on the site for this episode too, so you can go read it. Eve writes, in polyamory, there is some stuff that we may genuinely want that is purely because of conditioning that we do want to shed going to be uncomfortable and that we want to get okay with. And that won't harm us if we do. I was eventually able to learn not just to accept, but to enjoy seeing my husband hold hands with his partner or the look of bliss on his face when they kissed. And then there's other stuff that's really just not okay. That's harmful or abusive stuff like lying, keeping secrets, triangulating your partners, repeatedly springing decisions on someone that affect them without their input and gaslighting them when they complain. These are all things that happened to me. And for a long time, I thought it was my fault that it hurt, that I just needed to try harder. The problem is that the social and psychological milieu that is reinforced by the popular poly literature, including more than two, deadens our ability to tell the difference between these kinds of pain, between the psychic equivalent of a nice deep stretch and the pop of a tendon tearing or a shoulder dislocating. I recommend reading the rest of the piece. Eve has been thinking a lot about more than two and what's in it 
and some of the behaviors that were written about as things to aspire to that are now really being revealed as being harmful and opening the potential for some problematic behavior. So again, donsara.com slash EP288. You can get links to both of those pieces. And I think that it's important for all of us, all of us, to hold that whether we're hooking up with someone one time that we don't plan on ever seeing again, or we're in a long-term committed relationship, and anything and everything in between, we each have a responsibility to interact with other human beings with as much care and respect as possible. No human being is disposable. And even if we are both meeting up with the agreed upon intent of just fucking for these 30 minutes and never seeing each other again, my hope is that more and more of us can really start digging into the complexities of how we relate with each other so that we can do it with real intention, recognizing the impact that we have on other people, even in fleeting instances, and the ways that they carry that impact into other relationships, into their work, and into the world, and it all matters. Because if we can really, really start being inside of that uncomfortable complexity together, then we can all level up together. And so much more pleasure and love and connection becomes possible. Over the past few weeks, I have received two notes from someone named Catherine that I wanted to share. The first was an email, and it reads, Although I don't do New Year's resolutions, the intention that I set for 2019 was to examine my sexual hangups. I am proud of the work I've done so far, but have a long way to go. Yesterday, I did a Google search for sex and embodiment and found your website via your podcast episode 250 coming up in the search return. I purchased a platinum package to your Explore More Summit videos, and I'm only halfway through the first one. Everything you write on your blog and everything you say resonates with me deeply. This series of videos with the workbook is exactly what I have been looking for, and I am so grateful to you for putting it together and making it accessible. You have a wonderful energy, and I love the work you're doing. Thank you so very, very much. So that was a couple of weeks ago when I was on vacation. And then yesterday, Catherine actually wrote again via Patreon with this. I discovered you fairly recently, but you are exactly what I've been looking for. I absolutely love your podcast and the Explore More videos, and in a few short weeks, I've had several important insights about myself after listening to you and your guests. Today, I was listening to episode 282 and your comments about the flu shot and men who try to get away from wearing condoms touched me to my core. Thank you so much for doing the work that you do. Oh, thank you so much, Catherine. It's great to hear that you found me from a random Google search. 
that bodes well for my website. Hopefully more and more people find me and this work and all these incredible people I get to talk to. And it's great to hear that you've been working your way through some Explore More talks and the podcast. To everyone listening, you can still get access to past Explore More summits. If you go to exploremoresummit.com and donsara.com, there's information. It's like a graduate level course in bodies and relating and healing and the workbooks are hundreds of pages long. But to you, Catherine, it means a lot knowing that you are out there and you're asking yourself all these big questions and wanting to relate to yourself in new ways. I hope that it continues to feel really yummy and pleasurable as we move into 2020. And hopefully you can join us for Explore More Summit 2020. It's free to attend live. And of course, then you can buy extended access if you want to have more time and see more talks. But that is going to be happening in February of 2020. So definitely stay tuned. And thanks again for letting me know that you're out there and that you're being in these questions with me. It means a lot. Sophia wrote in about squirting and incontinence. Here's Sophia's email. Hi, Dawn. Searching on Google, I found your page and wanted to ask you something, since I have not found any answers on the internet. I started squirting about four years ago with a sexual partner. Occasionally, we had sex, and occasionally I squirted. I am now in a relationship with another man, and we have started squirting doing squirting very often, practically every time we have sex. And I've been with him for about five months. Since I started squirting more often, I've realized that I'm experiencing incontinence when I sneeze, cough, or jump. Could this be related? I assume it could. And if yes, what do you suggest I do? Stop squirting, make pelvic exercises, any help or feedback would be appreciated. Thanks, Sophia. Thank you so much for asking this question, Sophia. I reached out to some colleagues who specialize in pelvic health and heard back from several people, and I'm going to share their responses here. And I think a lot of you are going to find this really interesting. So Heather Raquel, who you can find on Instagram at Raquel Heather, that's R-A-Q-U-E-L-H-E-A-T-H-E-R, at Raquel Heather shared with me, often incontinence can be attributed to pelvic floor dysfunction and balance of muscles, which affects nerve function. I would suggest a pelvic floor physical therapist or a specialist who can help determine if the nerves and muscles might be operating differently from usual. It could be a coincidence, but sometimes the learned response of squirting with or without orgasm often with a squeezing or a building of pressure in the urethral sponge, can lead to an over-tightening of some of the muscles in the pelvic bowl, which then potentially correlate with issues like incontinence because chronically tight muscles are weaker. Tracy Scher wrote, Hi, pelvic floor specialist here. Yes, 
in an ideal world, it would be great to know a lot more about this person's history, age, childbirth history, and more. There can be underlying prolapse issues, urethral hypermobility, pelvic floor muscle considerations, etc. And this type of activity, squirting, may be augmenting these dysfunctions. Or we see some patients who push or change pressure with squirting, which creates other issues. There's lots to consider. It could be a coincidence too, because we see some people have hormone-related stress urinary incontinence. So I'd say a seasoned pelvic physical therapist and or urogynecologist. You can find Tracy at pelvicguru one on Instagram and Twitter and at pelvicguru.com. And then adding to the conversation, Heather Edwards says, I'm a pelvic physical therapist. I certainly had a case study that illustrates this. Someone was having stress incontinence and was having big forceful ejaculations. The big change for her was changing the way she ejaculates to allowing instead of pushing, like Tracy mentioned. So something to think about, all of us. You can connect with Heather at heatheredwardscreation.com and at Vino and Vulvas, all spelled out, Vino and Vulvas on Instagram. And then sex educator Cassandra Perry added, the pelvic physical therapist may end up referring you to a urogynecologist for urodynamic testing. Urogynecologists participate with insurance far more frequently than pelvic floor therapists, so I'd suggest starting with a urogynecologist, particularly if cost is an issue. A urogynecologist will also be able to refer to a pelvic floor therapist as needed, whereas if working with insurance, a pelvic floor therapist can't always refer a patient to a urogynecologist, especially with HMOs. All of that was really great information, so thank you to all of them for helping me to field this. I would also, to you, Sophia, recommend connecting with Dr. Yuchenna Osai. Uh, she goes by Dr. UC. You can find her on Instagram. She's doing some really awesome Instagram stories and educating around sex and pelvic health. She actually spoke at the last Explore More Summit in 2019, and she talked at length about how both overworked and underworked pelvic floor muscles can lead to prolapse, incontinence, and other challenges because both a hypertense and a hyperrelaxed pelvic bowl causes weakness. And that's why Kegel exercises are not recommended for all bodies. Kegel exercises are not recommended for all bodies because over-tightening, over-clenching, having those tight, tense muscles, which can happen if you're doing Kegels and that's not a good fit for your body, can lead to these very issues that both of the Heathers and Tracy spoke to here, like incontinence. So for you, Sophia, I would recommend getting checked out by a urogynecologist or a pelvic floor therapist to make sure that your pelvic floor and your muscles and your pelvic health are okay, or to see if there's something happening that might need treatment or some adjustments. If you're pushing, straining, 
tensing as part of your experience of squirting and doing that fairly often, that might be contributing to or causing some of this incontinence by weakening the muscles. It could also be totally unrelated because as we all know, bodies are complicated and nuanced and unique. And that's why it's worth seeing a specialist so that you can see if there's something you can change or practice differently. Knowing that sooner than later is a great thing because it'll be much easier to work on sooner in the process than later in the process. I hope that offers you some stuff to think about and hopefully it gets you to a specialist who can help you learn a little bit more about your body and what might help to reduce incontinence while increasing your pleasure and your play and all this yumminess that you're doing with your partner. So huge good luck. Thank you so much for writing in. I know lots of people who are listening are going to be really excited to learn this information. Jose wrote in with a subject line of confused. Their email says, am I the only guy who doesn't like sex? I love to masturbate and I'm always turned on. I love having erections and indulging in my sexual fantasies. I enjoy writing about them and turning them into erotica stories. Though I've only been with one person sexually, I don't really get much out of sex. I think the way it, I like the way it feels, but I would often just rather masturbate. I didn't start having sex until I was 25. When I was a teen, I'd masturbate to erotic photos and lingerie catalogs, and I'm still this way. I don't really go for porn, but more of the erotic and sexual type things. Real bodies, especially curvy and plus size. Most guys would have been having real sex when they were young, I guess, compared to me. And maybe this is part of it. Maybe I started my own habit and that's why I am the way I am. My partner tells me that she wishes I was more assertive and would take more initiative. She's always the one that asks for sex. She said I could go the rest of my life without sex and be okay. And maybe she's right. Thanks for your thoughts. Well, hello, Jose. The short answer to your initial question is a resounding no. You are not the only guy who doesn't like sex. Although I do think it's important to add that as we heard from the rest of your email, it's clear that you do love sex. It's sex with yourself and not a partner or partners. There are lots of people in the world who don't want sex solo or partnered, who don't enjoy sex, solo or partnered, and for whom sex isn't really a big part of their lives, solo or partnered. And that's perfectly normal, not uncommon. I think pop culture would lead us to believe otherwise, but there is an incredible variety of sexual experiences, preferences, and identities. It sounds like you, Jose, have a really rich sexual relationship with yourself. You enjoy sex with yourself. You've long enjoyed masturbation. You feel aroused often. You consume erotic and sexual material. This is sex. Having a sexual relationship with ourselves can be delicious and fulfilling, 
meaningful, pleasurable, creative, expressive, and really important. It's not lesser than or not quote unquote real sex. It's sex with yourself. And what a great thing to find a lover in yourself. I mean, your body is an ever-evolving and changing mystery. There's so much to get to know continuously over the course of our lives. If you can stay curious and open to those changes. I also think fewer young men are having sex than you would probably be led to believe. (laughs) Because sadly, with the rampant misogyny and sexism and patriarchal values that are embedded in what it means to be a man right now, performing sex is really common and normalized. Lots and lots of young men, particularly, but it's becoming much more common for all genders to do this (laughs) because we have this very performative sex positivity that's becoming very normalized, but lots and lots of young people really exaggerate, lie, mask the truth of their actual sexual experiences and inexperience. It's normal and common for men to have not had partnered sex in high school or in college. It's just that we've attached this really ridiculous and stupid, frankly, stigma to quote unquote virginity and what it means about a person's manhood, whatever that is. And then that fear can lead to all sorts of harmful and problematic behavior because we're trying to avoid bullying and being ostracized. Belonging trumps everything, even if it means we do really shitty things. And one thing that I think is super important to hold is the nuance around experience. Sometimes we just know a thing is true for us. Some people know from a very young age that they're gay or queer or bi or non-binary or prone to depression, whatever it is. We can be gay or queer, or trans, without ever having had any kind of experience with another human being or out in the world, because it's an internal way of knowing self, rather than something that has to be proven. I mean, people are just as gay, who have never been in a relationship, and who have never had sex with someone that shares their same gender, as someone who's been in lots of relationships, and had sex with lots of people of the same gender. Both and everything in between are valid and real ways of being gay. Experience is not required other than experience of self. You, Jose, might be asexual or maybe more towards the asexual side of the sexuality spectrum. You don't have to have engaged in partnered sex to prove or to know it, it might just be something that you know. Partnered sex is not something that you desire or want or enjoy. And I think this is where some of the nuance comes in. There are some things that we may think we don't like because our first experience or two were kind of disappointing or boring or embarrassing or awkward or because of where we were at that stage in our life. And with experience, with variety, sometimes we find we actually really are into something 
and that it was, we needed a different partner or to have had different life experiences first or to be in a different context in our lives or to have a different experience of our body before that thing became yummy for us. I mean, I think a super simple example would be like the first time that I was flogged. I went to a flogging workshop with a friend. It was for lesbians at the, at the leather bar in Washington, DC known as the Eagle. And there was maybe 30 of us and we were all taking turns, both flogging and being flogged. So we could just kind of get a sense for the movement and the motions for safety and also how to kind of articulate as the receiver, our limits, what we wanted, And frankly, when I was on the receiving end of that in that workshop, I didn't really like it at all. My kind of takeaway was, it's cool, but I don't really think this is a thing for me. But fast forward a few years after that, in a totally different context, with a person that I was really clicking with, where I was able to be with my body in a different way, experiencing some really yummy feelings of arousal and anticipation, I was flopped again and holy shit, did it feel so good. It was an entirely different experience from that first time. And having that really delicious flogging experience didn't invalidate everything that came before it, but it did open me up to a whole new reality that didn't exist for me prior to that experience. And it was important, too, that as part of that new experience, no one was pressuring me. No one expected me to be different. I didn't feel invalid or broken or wrong for not being into flogging. And I tried it from a place of really spacious, genuine curiosity that second time. And that is important because so often we try things from a place of duty or obligation, guilt, shame or fear. And it is really, really, really fucking difficult to enjoy something and to explore all of the unfolding possibilities inside of something when we're just trying to get through it. So I'd say that because this is not to say you should ever have to try something to prove to someone that you don't like something. And it's to say that None of us should ever encourage someone to ignore a boundary just for the sake of thinking that this time might be that magical time. This is why it's so incredibly annoying when straight men tell lesbians, yeah, but you haven't had sex with me. And they honestly think that that's in any way interesting or hot. That's not what we're talking about here. Not enjoying partnered sex Not wanting partnered sex is a perfectly valid way to be. It's not wrong or bad or abnormal, regardless of your gender or body parts. You're not wrong or behind, Jose. You didn't make yourself like this by masturbating as a young person. If not having partnered sex for the rest of your life feels okay, then it's totally and absolutely okay. You are not alone in that at all. And... If at any point there's a part of you that's curious to try partnered sex maybe with someone else or with your current partner but in a radically different context or maybe with just a couple of small tweaks or maybe you just want to conduct an ongoing series of experiments to find some things that you do enjoy in a partnered circumstance that maybe don't involve genitals, 
all of that is okay. I think the question really comes down to, would you like to experience partnered sex that feels a particular way or that happens in a particular context? And if so, is there a way for you to explore that space and to honor and validate that? If not, great. That's your truth. As long as you and your partner are able to find a way to be in relationship with each other that feels mutually fulfilling and supportive, then you do not have to change or be different. If it's worth saying your partner is often trying to initiate sex, desires sex, misses sex, and you just can't meet them in that sexual desire for partnered sex, that might be a place for some exploration and curiosity. I would hate to know that you have this really rich solo sex life and that your partner is growing increasingly resentful or increasingly ashamed for not getting to be a part of that. You know, if there is something in there that needs attention, would you want to open the relationship if you aren't already? Would you two want to maybe create circumstances where your partner got to work with a professional sex worker to get certain needs met? Or maybe being able to really talk about this, does your partner truly feel okay in having that longing and accepting that it just might never be met by you with gusto and enthusiasm? Because that is a really valid and acceptable choice. There is nothing wrong with all of us really wanting something and at the same time holding the complexity that acknowledges that if we were to maybe go in search of meeting this one particular desire, it might put other things that feel more important to, the, to us than that desire at risk and to choose to live with the wanting. It's okay to want a thing and then to choose to just let that wanting be true because all of these other things are more important at this particular juncture and it's okay to change your mind. So for you, Jose, I think what it comes down to is what makes you feel most alive, most connected to yourself and to those you love, what feels respectful to you and the relationships you're in and how can you find ways to celebrate and honor those truths, even if they buck convention and don't align with the cultural messages of what it means to be a man or to be in a relationship. We can all be deliciously, erotically expressed and creatively engaged and sensually open and joyous and getting all of our touch needs met without ever engaging in partner and sex. Because it's really common that many of us use sex as a way to get non-sexual needs met And if you, Jose, have this rich erotic life and it's working for the relationship that you're in, it doesn't need to change. It sounds like you have a rich, delicious sex life with yourself. And that is real, valid sex. And even if you didn't have a sex life with yourself and you weren't engaging in any kind of sexual activity, that's valid and a real wonderful way to be in the world. So keep doing the things that feel good. Stay open to things maybe changing down the road because we are always changing in these bodies of ours. And what's true now might not be true in the future. 
Collaborate with your partner on what would serve your relationship and your happiness, both individually and together, and keep savoring this pleasure that you give yourself. It's real, valid sex. I hope that was helpful. Thank you so much for writing in, Jose, and for listening to the show. Breast distress. (laughs) Wrote in about breast distress. So here's what they wrote. Hey, Don, I'm a longtime listener and appreciate the lenses with which you approach these topics. It's not easy to find in the sex advice world, but so important. I would love to hear your thoughts on a new dynamic I'm experiencing in my sexual and romantic life. I'm a cis queer woman. I recently started connecting sexually and romantically with another woman in my community who's married to a cis dude. We are navigating the dynamics of our relationship agreements right now, which seems to be pointing towards more sex in the near future. Yay. We've fooled around at bed and I slept over last night, though we haven't done our full on STI check-in yet, so we haven't gotten to genital touch, though there's been a lot of other yummy touching and kissing. Which brings me to my question. Last night, we fooled around topless, and breastplay was a big part of our connection. The only thing is she has much larger breasts than I do or than anyone that I've been with before. I noticed for myself some anxiety and discomfort arising from feeling the texture and the weight of her large breasts on my body and in my hands, and then I felt guilt arise in my body for those feelings about a new partner's beautiful body. I'm super unsure how to touch them well in a way that would be pleasurable to her and also how to physically do so in a way that is possible for my hands and mouth that are only so big. Help! Any advice for queer sex with big-breasted, chested folks and to help me learn to love and enjoy her breasts as much as I desire to as we connect in the future? With appreciation, breast distress. Ah, well, breast distress. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to the show and for writing in and for your kind words. It sounds like you have some really yummy new frontiers that are about to open up. So woohoo for that. And you probably already know what I'm going to say. As always, the simplest answer to your question is to simply ask her how she wants to be touched. What brings her pleasure? And then to explore that together and to give yourself an opportunity to get to know this new body that is new to you and to let yourself be kind of awkward about it for a while. It's new. It's different. And you don't have to know how to do the things right away. Your partner and only your partner knows what it's like to have those breasts. What parts are sensitive? What parts she doesn't care for? What positions feel sexy? And what positions are handling feels clunky and embarrassing? I've known a number of people over the years with large breasts who were miserable with their breasts 
They had indentations being carved into their shoulder bones from the weight of their bras, comments from people on the street about their chest, clothes that never fit, being fetishized in ways that felt non-consensual and yucky, having numbness or a lack of sensation in the nipples. And I've known people with large breasts who love their breasts and love having them touched and jiggled and nibbled and who can orgasm from nipple play and then everything in between. You could talk to 10 different people with large chests and get 10 different responses about the ways that they like to be touched because every single body is unique and you know that. So when you're dealing with large breasts, there's a couple of things and truly larger bodies in all shapes and sizes The first is don't be scared of them. It might be new. It might be different. uh, It might be something you've never encountered before. But often people who have either larger bodies as a whole or certain parts of their body that are larger than a lot of other bodies, it can hurt when you find someone who's scared of your body or timid around your body. So instead, finding a way to get really excited and curious I think can go a really long way. Also, many people with large breasts will tell you that certain positions might not be as comfortable because breasts can ride up and kind of choke you or get caught under your body or having them hang in a certain way might not feel really good. And so a big part of this, like anything that we're new to, especially when it's sexual in nature, having a sense of humor, being really open and curious in any sexual encounter is a great thing because awkwardness is literally inevitable. (laughs) And when we know that and embrace it, it can become endearing and playful. And it sounds like the two of you are really off to a great start of something that's really delicious and pleasurable and fun. So how can you bring some curiosity in around her body? If I were you, I would ask her directly about what touches she loves most, how she touches and holds her breasts. When does it feel comforting? When does it feel erotic and arousing? Ask her favorite sexual memory of someone touching and playing with her breasts. Ask her what she'd love for you to do. Ask her to show you if you aren't sure what she means and let your curiosity be the thing that's arousing. It's not about your skill or knowing what to do. This is true for every single one of us, regardless of the body we're in. I could sleep with 100 people who have bodies that look virtually identical, and 100 of them would be different from each other in all of these small and big ways. The curiosity to get to know, to delight in, to discover, that's where we can find all kinds of delicious memory making and pleasure. It's not about whether or not I have the skill. It's more about do I have the attitude and the energy? She is well aware of the size of her breasts. So she's not going to expect you to fit more in your mouth than is biologically possible or to be able to do more with your hands than they possibly can. She knows the size of your body parts as much as she can see the size of her body parts and will know how to work with that. And beyond what she offers you as her answers and her truth, what would help you to feel endlessly fascinated and curious? What happens? 
when you slowly kiss your way around the outer curve of one of her breasts? What about when you run your fingers so, so, so feather lightly in that super sensitive spot underneath her breast that's always hidden and tucked under other flesh? What happens when you blow on a nipple while she dangles it just out of reach of your mouth as she stands above you? Where can you touch her to get a gasp or a giggle or to make goosebumps happen? When she's just a little turned on and not quite aroused yet, what would make her moan with relaxation versus what might make her moan with arousal when she's super turned on and close to orgasm? There's so much to discover here. And instead of thinking about the things you can't do and aren't sure of, how can you turn that around into this childlike delight of getting to know this landscape and all of this flesh. It's also okay to ask her, do you enjoy nipple stimulation? If so, what kind and when? Some people might say, oh, I really like pressure on my nipples or I like pulling on my nipples, but that's not specific enough because I can tell you that at a certain point in the arousal process, pulling on nipples is probably not going to feel very good. So get more curious and experiment I mean, I am very upfront about not really enjoying nipple stimulation very much with my partners because I would much rather someone concentrate their touches and kisses on parts that feel really yummy for me and that's not it. She is the expert in her body. So I would encourage you to enlist her help in finding ways of touching, holding, massaging, kissing, caressing, and enjoying not only her breasts, but all of her in a way that works for the both of you. Maybe she loves a vibrator on her nipples. Maybe she likes nipple clamps. Maybe she likes having her breasts kind of restrained and held tightly against her body so that she doesn't feel the weight of them as much. Or maybe she likes having them in rope and kind of tied really tightly. Maybe she's just kind of eh about breast play but the breast play that already happened was more a function of the fact that you weren't engaging with genitals more than anything else. There's so many things to ask and to discover. Alison Moon wrote a really fun and practical article for Bustle a couple of years ago. I'm going to link to it at donsarah.com slash EP288 so you can check it out. And it's called 14 Tips for Sexy Breast Play. There's a lot of yummy little things in there that you might be able to then turn into some questions. And you can make those questions really flirtatious and sensual and sexy. It doesn't have to be like sit down interview type thing, you know, being able to just ask one or two questions in this particular instance, and then a few more questions in this particular instance, and just slowly getting to know each other can be a really fun thing. There's so much opportunity here. So ripe, so rich, so juicy. If you can just find ways to tap into some of that curiosity around the newness. What's it like for you to hold her massive breasts in your hands as you stand behind her? Or to reach up and have all of this skin to gently caress. Maybe if you ever go down on her. If she was covered in oil, what would it be like to slide against her large breasts with your body as you rode her thigh or used a vibrator on herself? You don't have to be good at the thing 
or know all the things and try and figure it out on your own. It's okay to be a little unsure, surprised, even thrown off by this new experience. It's normal when we encounter something new to us. And it sounds like you were a little bit like, oh, I have not encountered breasts like this before. They feel heavy. They feel different. And to feel a little bit foreign about that, ask questions. And you can make them as flirty and as sexy and as hot as you want them to be. Think about what it would really mean to delight in all of this flesh, to know it in new ways, and then to get to experience her reactions. Delight in the differences of your body. And maybe watch some feminist porn featuring performers with larger breasts just to see the different ways people move and touch each other. I would highly recommend starting at Crash Pad as a jumping off point. Let her guide you until you have a better understanding of the things that you both like. She knows herself, her pleasure, and her breasts better than any book, article, website, expert, or video. And the best part is she wants to be doing these things with you. So use that desire to be with you as a way to increase both your knowledge and your pleasure. I hope that offers you just a little bit of permission and some ideas of where to start breast distress. It sounds like you've got a really great foundation and there's just a little bit of an opportunity for some more curiosity here, but I hope that lots more fun, delicious yumminess is ahead of you. And thank you so much for writing in and for listening. Patrons, this week's bonus is me answering a listener question about first-time sex, being virgins, face-fucking, all from the same person who not only is about to have partnered sex for the first time, but who wants to do it condomless and do it face-fucking. You can tune in to both the question and my answer at patreon.com slash podcast. If you support the show at $3 a month and above, you get weekly exclusive content you won't hear anywhere else like me answering this question. So again, that's at patreon.com slash SGR podcast. And that's it for this week's episode. I'm taking the next two weeks off so I can be with family and prep for the new year. So I'll be airing Explore More content and some other stuff. So not to worry, you're going to have episodes to listen to as you travel. They might not be new, but they'll be fun. And I hope that you have a wonderful, wonderful end of 2019 and an even better new year. I will be back with new episodes starting January 5th, 2020. And please be sure to send in your questions, donsarah.com. I want to hear from you so I can fill the new year with all kinds of goodness from you. Until next time, I'm Don Sarah. Bye. You used to light up like a spark Now you're blue, treading water in the dark A huge thanks to the vocal few, the married duo behind the music featured in this week's intro and outro. Find them at vocalfew.com. Head to patreon.com slash sexgetsreal to support the show and get awesome weekly bonuses. As you look towards the next week, I wonder, what will you do differently that rewrites an old story, revitalizes a stuck relationship, or helps you to connect more deeply with your pleasure? So don't be ashamed.